I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. When many of us think about George Balanchine, we think of him as the established ballet master and choreographer, presiding over his New York City ballet and dazzling the dance world with his artistic invention and authority. But how often do we picture him as a young man or as a little boy? In these next two episodes, we'll do just that. We'll take a close look at the people and events that shaped Balanchine's youth, and this will help us to more deeply understand and appreciate his later life and work. These episodes will also highlight how the art of ballet never exists in a vacuum. It's always in a dynamic relationship with the particular time, place, and political system in which it develops. Our guide on this journey into Mr. B's past is Elizabeth Kendall. She's an associate professor of liberal studies and literary studies at the New School for Social Research. She's the author of several books, including American Daughter and The Autobiography of a Wardrobe. In 2006, Elizabeth received a Fulbright grant to conduct research in St. Petersburg, Russia, on Balanchine's early life. This ultimately resulted in a biographical book entitled Balanchine and the Lost Muse. The London Review of Books had this praise for it. Kendall's portrait of Balanchine's first 20 years will now be the standard reference for this period. It really is a marvelous read, and I highly recommend it to all of you. In addition to her academic work on Balanchine, Elizabeth has been an ardent and longtime observer of New York City Ballet. It seemed appropriate that she be the first scholar to be interviewed on this podcast. Elizabeth and I recently sat down for an illuminating discussion that was part Balanchine biography and part masterclass in Russian history. Here is part one of our conversation. Elizabeth, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I'm so looking forward to the insights that you're going to share with us today about Balanchine's early life. Silas, it is a pleasure to be talking with you. Elizabeth, what are your memories from the first New York City ballet performance that you saw? Silas, I came uh, to New York as a young person, steeped in avant-garde, Judson-era-type dance that deconstructed any kind of formal technique. Mm. And I took a long time to get to City Ballet because I thought it would be boring. I was so wrong. Somebody dragged me to a performance, and I don't remember everything I saw, but I did see Raimonda variations. And I had the huge luck to see Violet Verdi in one of her last performances of Raimonda Variations. And what I realized was, this is the opposite of drudgery. This is a party. This is a celebration. And the audience is the guests. I love that image of the artwork as hospitality. And Mr. B talked so much about the evening's performance being like a meal with the three ballets, like an appetizer, an entree, and a dessert. So that idea of the ballet being this banquet that's set before the audience. And you really got that. What has it meant to you to be part of the City Ballet audience all these many years now, Elizabeth? Oh, Silas, I'm so proud to be part of this audience and to watch you all arrive and grow and come into your own I think I want to go back to when I was really young because I arrived in New York at a very, uh, very fraught time in my life. I was young. I didn't know basically anyone in New York. I was 
not sure what I wanted to do, how to make a living, what making a living meant. My mother had just died in a car accident and I was the driver, so there were all kinds of vapors of guilt and shame and pure grief going through my mind and body that I didn't know what to do with. And what I would do, and forgive me if I get a little teary, Mm -hmm. I would go to the city ballet and I would say to the stage, take me, take my mood, take my troubles. Mm. And the stage would take them and they would like rinse me out Mm. and give me back something that I could go on with. Mm. So that was the balancing, that was the fact that balancing was there, that was the fact that the performances were so alive, so daring, so musical, and generous. Mm. And something like soul-restoring. They were. They're exactly that. Elizabeth, in 1981, you had the privilege of interviewing Balanchine. What was some of the substance of that conversation? You know, he never said anything that was exactly expected or predictable. At the beginning of the interview, I almost turned around and went out because he said, he got, he stood up, he had an ascot on, and he stood up and welcomed me very courteously. And and then he said, it's boring what we talk about today. And I said, oh, Mr. B, it's going to be so boring. Please forgive me for taking your time. I, I can leave. I don't have to. And No, no. He said, we do interview, then we talk. And we did the interview really uh, very, very efficiently, but not uninterestingly. Right. And then he looked at me and said, do you know what I do in Revolution to get food? And I said, no. And he said, I sewed saddles. And I was like, my God, I don't have any frame of reference for this. What is he talking about? Um, Because an ordinary American young person going through high school and college even does not learn about Russian history. I knew there was, of course, a Russian revolution, but sort of nothing more. And I thought, you know, I swear on this on this moment that I will learn all about Russian history. So I I feel amazingly really really happy and to use a cliched word blessed that that happened to me mm. because I got hired by the Ford Foundation to put a report together and got to have that extraordinary interaction with Balanchine. With Balanchine. But I also got to go through the whole archives of all those trips out to see what there was out there in the in the US. What who was teaching what and what kind of ballet were they teaching? Mm. And that was fascinating and that's another story. Elizabeth, in 2013, Oxford University Press published your book Balanchine and the Lost Muse: Revolution and the Making of a Choreographer. This book focuses on Balanchine's life in Russia from his birth in 1904 until his journey to the West in 1924. Why did you want to write a book on Balanchine? And why this particular focus on his early life? I had written four other books, and two of them, the most recent of the four, were memoirs about myself and my family. So when the question came up, what do I write? right next. I thought of all those years at the New York City Ballet, and I hadn't really, I'd written articles about Balanchine, about new works. I'd done some interviewing, but uh, I decided, well, I want to give Mr. Balanchine a book. And I thought, well, what, there's been four books already. What could I contribute? 
And I thought uh, that I, I had Russian. I had acquired, I had like sponged up Russian in a burst of excitement from the, in the 80s and 90s. And I thought, I think I can go into the Russian archives and check some of these stories that we know only from Mr. B, which is not a way to write history. So I set off and I was lucky enough to get several grants at the Kalman Center at the New York Public Library, a heavenly grant, a Fulbright Foundation grant that sent me to St. Petersburg in 2006 for a half a year to just do research. And I had the names of some of the archives that I thought I should consult, but that's all I had. I had to learn where these archives were, what to do with them. So the reason I wrote the book is because I thought I was the one, I felt like I was a sort of emissary to another country from our dance critics community. And I could go um, and, and search, do some deep diving into not only Mr. B's life, but the context, the history, what was happening around his growing up. And there was another reason I always would stop when I was going through the life on this eerie... It gives you chills when you read about the death of his classmate, Lydia Ivanova, um, who, and she died under suspicious circumstances. She would have come out to the West with Balanchine and the three other dancers, but she died, um, probably violently, probably a murder. So I thought I would do a double biography. I thought I would bring her into this history, a person who, because she died, she wasn't part of the story. And I also thought that she would be a way for me to compare the female training with the male training. She would be my window into what it was like to be a, an aspiring ballerina when Balanchine was an aspiring dancer. Mm, fascinating. And her name was Lydia Ivanova. And her nickname was? Lidichka. Lidichka. And in fact, the Russian habit is wonderfully warm. It's to give you... A nickname, automatically. I'm Lizinka, Lizichka. You will be Silasichka. <laughs> Silasinka. Silasinka, I like yeah. that. My Russian, my, my Russian nickname. Yeah. Now, Mr. Balanchine was born in St. Petersburg. His name was Georgi Melatonovich Balanchivadze. Well done, Silas. And his classmates at the Imperial Ballet School called him George. They did. Correct? So I think for our podcast today, we should we could probably just continue to refer to him as Balanchine just for the sake of our listeners. And our listeners will remember from the first episode of this podcast how Balanchine Vadze became Balanchine when he went to work for Diaghilev in the Ballet Russin. Mr. Diaghilev changed the name to what he deemed the more pronounceable Balanchine. And it came out wonderful. It's a beautiful Balanchine. collection of three syllables. And it sounds like ballet, ballet, Balanchine. Yeah. You know, he uh, almost has his own art form in his name. Exactly. Now, this podcast takes its name from the famous Balanchine saying, See the music, hear the dance. And in past episodes, we've discussed just how important music and musicality was to Balanchine's whole artistic practice. And this musical instinct must have flowed at least in part from his father, Melaton Balanchivadze, who was a composer. Could you share with us some about Melaton and his music? Melaton Antonovich Balanchivadze was a f totally interesting character. He came from a tiny place in rural Georgia where I've been. It's not even a town. It's just a piece of countryside called Banoja. 
the highest part of Banoja is a church that the parishioners in the neighboring towns built for Meliton's father, that is Balanchine's grandfather, who was a priest. The priests in Georgia were the sort of leaders, informal leaders of society, and obviously the leaders of religion. And there's music in the service. So there was music in church, and uh, I believe Balanchine's grandmother was um, an informal master of the chonguri, a Georgian stringed instrument, and she would recite legends and play the in the old Homeric tradition, only this was native to Georgia. Yeah. So Meliton was very charming. He was deeply wanted. I think there had been three stillborn children. He was adored. He was probably spoiled. His father started a school for him and the neighboring children. Um, and Meliton had a real musical gift. He had a great voice, and he sang in church choirs. And then he began to... There was a real Georgian independence movement when he was young, Meliton. He was short, he was very attractive, very funny, very full of charm, and he loved women and wine and song. But Meliton realized that the Georgian music was a treasure chest, both the secular and religious music. And he began to collect Georgian songs which had never been written down in Western notation. And if you've ever heard Georgian music, all you have to do, listeners, is just go on YouTube and write Georgian music, and you get this wonderfully wild, polyphonic, polyrhythmic music. Because Georgia's got a whole lot of mountains, and each little mountain and each little valley had its own music and its own instruments and amazing percussive rhythms and dancing. and there's even some dancing where the men dance on, on block shoes, like point shoes, as you probably know. It's a very, very rich and wild and fierce uh, tradition of music and dance. And Melaton realized that the world hadn't heard this. And he began to collect and he began to write his own songs. But then he realized that he didn't have Western training. And his father was very ambitious for all his sons. But Melaton decided he had to go study at the St. Petersburg Conservatory, which he, which he did, even though he left behind a wife and two children. This was probably a very fraught time in his life, but he went to St. Petersburg. He became a student of Rimsky-Korsakov. The great composer and the great orchestrator. The great composer and orchestrator. Who, there's a tale that Melaton first wanted to study singing, and Rimsky said, or somebody said, no, my share Kafkavets, my person from the Caucasus, you're too small. You will be lost on an opera stage. Study composing. Your country needs that. Hmm. And so he did. So he became a kind of father of Georgian music. Yes. He wrote one act of the first Georgian opera, which was played all over and was acclaimed. And, but he was very ebullient and, as you probably have heard, he had to sort of stop his music practice because the family won a sum, of, a huge sum of money, and it messed up Melaton's musical life. Mm. He had to take care of the money, and he had to leave his music behind. So he's kind of, he's a wonderful abulian and a little bit of a tragic figure. Mm. He finished that opera in the mid-30s, just before his death, when Stalin said, hey, wait a minute, where's the rest of the first Georgian opera? Wow. Here's an excerpt from that first Georgian opera, 
Tamara Wheely by Melaton Balachivadze. Balanchine's mother was named Maria. What was she like, and what was Mr. Balanchine's relationship with her? Maria Vasilieva Balanchivadze. The rumor has it that she was uh, the child of someone who deserted her family named Almadingen. Now, Almadingen is a really rare name. It's also not Russian. It's Austrian or German. And we looked, and the we was a wonderful Russian genealogist that I hired to help me find things. But all we could do was pick up rumors. It's as if Maria herself hid her origins. Fascinating. So she's a bit of a mystery. She's very much a mystery. Mm. I've even stood on her grave on a hill above a road in Georgia and asked her to please reveal herself and I was pulling weeds up and stuff. But uh, she hasn't done that yet. (laughs) (laughs) I love that as an author and as a history detective, you can feel almost a mystical connection to these Yeah, I thought maybe there would be a broadband with with the grave. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. B was born in St. Petersburg, but spent some of his childhood in Finland. What were those years in Finland like for him and his family? His family was so strange, because not only were they a strange union, a Georgian from the country who wanted to stay in the city and took another wife, and a Russian of obscure background. So they won all this money, apparently in a lottery attached to a savings bond that they went to cash in because they had no money at all, and they found this savings bond came with a winning sum, like a million dollars or something. And then they had to figure out what to do with it. Of course, they got a huge apartment. They got a carriage. But then Melaton didn't really have any business experience. And he, of course, attracted people who were like, sure, we, oh, hi, we'll tell you what to do with this money. And he made some investments that didn't work, and the money drained away. Meanwhile, uh, Maria had bought a vacation house in a very upscale sort of vacation village that was built around 1902 and 4. They bought some land there and they built a house. And when all the money went, they gave up the apartment, which was a lot of money to pay rent. And they went to live in this house that they built in the country. So when Balanchine was about five and a half, six, they moved year-round to the Finnish countryside, which is a bunch of forests and lakes. And what was Balanchine's life like there? What were his activities and the family's life at that time. They grew a lot of food themselves. Maria made a huge garden. She pickled things for the winter. They kind of lived as uh, en famille. And and they couldn't even go to school because the schools were in Finnish. So they were schooled at home, essentially, and they did piano lessons. There was a, a woman who came up, came in and taught them piano. And they worked in the garden then, but what you can't fill the days with just that. So I think Balanchine roamed around a lot by himself. And I think they probably all did. And they threw snowballs at the Finnish kids, and the Finnish kids threw snowballs at them. And because they were the sort of the only Russians left in the winter. In the summer, all the vacationing Russians came from St. Petersburg, but in the winter, it was the local population. 
Finland was part of the Russian Empire, so it wasn't really a foreign country. It was just the Finnish part of the of the Tsarist Empire. Mm. Interesting to note how Balanchine started his formal musical education quite young. Then. Yes, I believe that music was really important in the nuclear family, and lessons were really important. They got taken to the opera. They performed for the guests. The two boys would play the piano, and they made a menu of pieces so the guests could choose. And music probably grew much more important when they were alone in the woods. Because in a, in a Finnish winter, there's it's really dark for a lot of the day. It's very far north. There's a lot of snow. There's a lot of really a lot of contrast between the warmth of the interior and the snow outside. And you can feel it in Balanchine's Nutcracker, don't you Absolutely. think? Absolutely. The warmth of the party scene and then breaking out into the chill of the snow scene exactly. at the end of and the wind and the wind coming in and, and the snow and the and then then the tree. And this I've been to this Finnish place. I've been to the place where the foundation is probably their house. And of course it's just full of beautiful tall Christmas trees. That were still vivid in Mr. Balanchine's mind in 1954 when he was doing his Nutcracker, I would imagine. I believe, Silas, that it's this, the conditions of Balanchine's childhood are really, really one of a kind. And I was thinking last night in the night how to explain it. Because what we're about to come up to in this, in this story is Balanchine's being put in the theater school, which trained dancers and his being put there without his knowing that that's where he was going and he's being left there which was would have been a major trauma for any nine-year-old and was for him apparently but i think what happened when his family his mother left him at the imperatorskaya teatralna uchilisha which is the imperial theater school i think the shock and the hurt and the grief might have smashed the psyche into silence of some kind. So what you have is a little boy with two deep layers of experience. One is the urban one, the beautiful city that with all of its color and its peasants selling things and the music and the and the noises of the city and the, and the smells. St. Petersburg apartment that they lived in. Yeah, the streets were really amazing because there were peasants everywhere selling things going and they would come back and forth from villages so the Life was colorful in St. Petersburg. And then they stop living there, and they go and live in the country where you have the snow and the smell of the country and the smell of the forest, and the sun is like butter in Finland. It's so precious. When the sun comes out, especially in summer, it's like you're bathed in butter. Mm -hmm. And in the winter, it's like you're bathed in the cold and the snow. It's like a cloak. It's kind of beautiful. And so you have a layer of city, a layer of country, deep in the psyche, and then smash, inaccessible. And it's a way, in a way, he's drawing on the city and then drawing on the country. All these deep sensations go into the valleys. As you've just said, Mr. B received his training at St. Petersburg's Imperial Theater School. And before we go into his time there, could you just give us some background on the Imperial Theater School itself? It's in the center city, but it's in the famous theater street, which is now called the street, the Rossi Street, after its architect. And it was a perfectly classical street. That it's exactly as wide as it is tall, and its its length is ten times that the width and and height. So it's exquisite proportions. It's like you get lost in it. It's like you're. It's like um, you know the Bermuda Triangle. 
So you're inside it and you're like in a complete environment. Mm. And the two facades on either side match. So it's like you've walked into a, a, an urban canyon. And one side of that street is the Imperial Theater School. So dance came to Russia under the Tsar, Tsarina Anna Ivanovna who was the niece of Peter the Great. She was the first monarch after Peter the Great, before Elizabeth, his daughter. Bloodlines were very confused and confusing, um, but she rescued St. Petersburg, which had been Peter's project, and the nobles thought they could control her, a woman, and she signed an agreement that she would do what they said, but when she became queen, she tore it up in front of their eyes and brought her court back to St. Petersburg and made it the city it was. And one of the things she did was she invited a French dancing master to teach the cadets in a new army school for elite sons of nobles that she had started. So this guy arrived from Paris and started to teach the cadets how to bow and how to escort the ladies. And then he said, let me make some dancers while I'm here. So he asked for six boy servants and six girl servants of people who worked at the palace. And he got 12 of each. And he made dancers. And they started going into performances. And then that's how the Imperial Theater was born. There's an opera component that is a whole other story. But the ballet component came out of Anna Wanova's desire to attach the army closer to herself. And they might as well be graceful, lovely young men. And so by the time Mr. Dubé arrived at the Imperial Theater School, it was this very esteemed cultural institution and had trained generations of dancers and was attached to a great imperial ballet company which by that time had already presented amazing works like the sleeping beauty and swan lake and the nutcracker it was attached to a great ballet company um, but we must be careful when we throw around great because i believe the ballet had a, a kind of a fragile history inside of the opera theater at different times in its history mm-hmm. which i'm not a specialist on but mm-hmm. i believe it's being worked on that petipa wasn't so secure as we think that the the ballet almost disappeared a couple of times. Mm. But in a sense, you're right, because there was an institution, there were ballet performances twice a week, and the rest of the time it was operas. Now, the Imperial Theater School started out to be a school for all the arts, but the other arts didn't need to train people as young as ballet did. So that's why it's still called the Imperial Theater School, not the Imperial Ballet School. Fascinating. And how did Mr. B come to audition for this Imperial Theater School? Well, the story goes, and I think it's probably true, that his sister was the one who really wanted to dance. And his mother, the mysterious Maria, was really invested in the sister dancing as well. And if you were an ambitious parent in St. Petersburg, you wanted to get close to the highest rungs on the ladder, which was the royal family. And the royal family, the Tsar's family, was very involved with the school by tradition. It was paid for out of the budget of the Tsar's household. Mm. So it was part of the Tsar's household. The children studying were part of the Tsar's family, in a way. And various royals would drop by for lunch, and they would drop in whenever they wanted, and their portraits were on the walls. So the story goes that he was watching his sister audition. He was just there because they came three hours on the train from Finland. And somebody noticed him on the sidelines and said, oh, that little boy looks 
like he's proud. Let's put him in the lineup. And at the end of that day in 1913, George was offered a place in the school and Tamara was not. And he stayed immediately. Yes, because to take him home and bring him back again and go home again, it was a lot to do. And I believe there was about a week before school started, so they just left him there with no advance warning. So all of a sudden just cut off from his family in an afternoon. Left behind by his family. Mm. What was the structure of this theater school like when Mr. B entered? What was its curriculum, the lifestyle of the students? The structure of the theater, of the Imperial Theater School, was absolutely a structure. You knew what you were doing at all times of day. Um, It was completely organized, ritually so. There were rituals that had to do with your training. You would get up, you would be washed communally around a big copper basin by the manservants who took care of you. You would then be uh, given some breakfast, then you would go on a regimental walk around the block in lines like in Madeline, you know, Mm. that children's book. Mm -hmm. And then you would have ballet training in the morning, like I think it was like 10 to 11.30, 10 to 12, with your teacher. And then you would have some lunch, and then you would have academic classes. Then you would go and have supper. Then you would have more classes. The boys had fencing in the evening and some other things. And then you had a strict bedtime. Bells would ring. It's bedtime. And you had, like, five minutes to read, like, a boy's book of adventure. And then you were supposed to be asleep. And you were in a... A drafty dormitory. It was a beautiful building with three spacious floors. Girls lived on the first floor, which was raised up from the street. The boys on the second floor, their whole thing was there. It was all ritualized. Elizabeth, one of the things I was struck by in reading your book was how the staff and the faculty of the Imperial Theater School were like this cast of characters in a novel. Silas, there are two casts of characters in this, in Balanchine's schooling. The pre-revolutionary and the post-revolutionary. The first cast of characters, they were the people who'd been there forever. They were like minor nobility. They were like somebody's sister who hadn't married or somebody's second son who was a little bit uh, too in love with the theater. Then they would go and be the caretakers or the schoolmasters, and sometimes the schoolmasters and the caretakers were the same. The academic subjects were like math, religion, French history. But then came the revolution, which, and we might be jumping ahead, but it's okay, because there was a real question about why did a new Bolshevik Republic of the people need the aristocratic art of ballet? It's a miracle that Russian ballet was saved. It's probably because Lenin's cultural minister loved ballet. His name was Lunacharsky. But what he did to save ballet was he found the right staff for both the theater and the school. And to explain who the staff were, you have to go a little bit into history because the Russian Revolution of 1917 was really two revolutions. One was the popular February uprising that was like, we're going to have a democracy and everybody's going to be brothers. And then the second revolution was when the chaos of that got too chaotic, the far-left party called the Bolsheviks 
took over. They took over the whole city and thereby the whole empire. But before that, in 1905, there was an earlier Russian revolution. It was like a rehearsal. There was a general strike nationwide to have the same thing, parliamentary representation, um, more like, semi, like a, a constitutional monarchy rather than an absolute monarchy. And in 1905, the theater was part of that strike. And some of the people in the theater were more radical than others, and they struck. Fokin was the leader. Karsavina was part of it. But anyone who came into that revolution, which kind of failed, that's a long story, was gradually sent out of the theater or sort of made to feel they had to leave. So a lot of people left. They went to perform and teach in Europe. They went on tour. They left the theater. And in 1917, they came back to be part of the new world that had finally happened. Hmm. And the dancers who came back were put by Lunacharsky into the positions of leadership, including into the teaching positions. And the, one of my minor, now major, heroes is Ablakov, uh, Andrea Ablakov, who became the head of the school. He was just the most enlightened person, and all his faculty, he brought in new young teachers to really teach literature, which they really hadn't had. They didn't taught whatever they needed to be obedient dancers. Now they had like things for their mind and excitement about the art. And Oblokov wanted to make dance intellectuals, not just ballet Deadwood who had a guaranteed employment in the theater. He wanted people to renew the art, to make it revolutionary, to make it for the people, to see what the next chapter, what the future of ballet would be and what ballet can contribute to the future and to the people. Balanchine had three principal teachers over the course of his training. The first was Samuel Konstantinovich Andreanov. Could you share with us a little bit about him and his influence on Balanchine? I, I kind of love Andreanov because Balanchine loved him, but so did all his students. He was only 29 when uh, Balanchine came into his class as a boy. He was a danseur at the Mariinsky. I'm sure you've had that experience of training with teachers that then you can go see them dance in the evening. Mm -hmm. It's astonishing. It's a privilege. And it's a privilege, and it, and it makes the whole thing so real. But Andrianov, I think, was uh, more than a beautiful technician. I think he was musical and sort of light and pure. I think Balanchine associated him, Andrianov, with the qualities of the city itself. And the city is this kind of mirage because it's all made of five-story palaces, all painted different colors, on the water. There are canals all through the city. And there's a huge bunch of water around it. it. The weather's always changing and there's mist and snow and rain and beautiful sun and it's like a mirage and it's elegant. I think Andrianov was a very Petersburg dancer and Andrianov died in 1917 very tragically and suddenly or we would have heard much more from him. So he's both a technical balletic example for Mr. B and then maybe some of Mr. B's later sense of style and always presenting himself very uh, elegantly might have also Absolutely. come from Andriana. Yeah. How did Balanchine take to ballet training at first? Balanchine didn't like it at all for his whole first year, although we can't quite trust that 
because he was asked back for a second year. And in all the rituals that made up the Imperial Theater School, first years were kind of on probation. They were auditioning for the whole year. There were nine in Balanchine's year, plus him, and I think two or three were asked back. And George was one of them, which means he might have hated it, but he was doing it. He showed some aptitude. His body showed that he was doing it. You can't be accepted if your body is not responding at all. And to make your body respond, you have to put some work into it. That's right. And he you was, all know. Exactly. Exactly. And he was doing the work, whether he enjoyed it or not. At the beginning. Exactly. But by his own admission and listeners to this, you know there's a wonderful article by Balanchine himself at the end of the Complete Stories of Ballets. It, where it's called How I Became a Dancer and Choreographer. And you can read him saying himself when he was first on stage in, a, in his second year in a performance of Sleeping Beauty, and he realized he was part of something much bigger. And, of course, Tchaikovsky's music had so much to do with this. He was in the Garland Waltz, and he was also a Cupid on the carriage in the last act, I think. This is one of my favorite moments in Balanchine's life story because it was a true turning point. Up to that point, he hadn't yet experienced what this classroom training could really prepare him for. But then there he was in Sleeping Beauty, experiencing the fruit of the training and the magic of appearing on the stage. And this was a defining moment for him. I'm going to just read the excerpt because we have it here. Later in his life, Balanchine would remember this Sleeping Beauty performance like this. My first time on the stage was in a Tchaikovsky ballet. It was in Sleeping Beauty. I was still a small boy then. I was a Cupid, a tiny Cupid. It was Petipa's choreography. I was set down on a golden cage, and suddenly everything opened. A crowd of people, an elegant audience, and the Mariinsky Theater, all light blue and gold. And suddenly the orchestra started playing. I sat on the cage in indescribable ecstasy, enjoying it all, the music, the theater, and the fact that I was on stage. Thanks to Sleeping Beauty, I fell in love with ballet. Bravo, Tchaikovsky. Bravo, Tchaikovsky. Bravo, Petipa. Bravo, Petipa. Now, Mr. Balanchine's second teacher was Semyonov. Semyonov, you know, when you're finding out who people are over the course, over uh, after a hundred years, you you get these feelings about them, and it's not idle, your feelings. Semyonov was not a nice man. Nobody really liked him. He was kind of, he had real qualities when he was a dancer. He would land without a sound. He would land like a cat. But he kind of exploited the students. He would take them out on tours and not pay them. Mm. And so Semyonov took over the school, the teaching of Balanchine's class right at the moment when Andrianov died, so I'm not sure they really appreciated him. Mm. And I'm not sure he was a really kind at all, but they were already far enough along that they could keep themselves interested from what Andrianov had shown ballet to be to them. Mm. Semyonov was the one who, if you read Tamara Jiva's memoir, Balanchine's First Wife, she was a student at the evening classes after the revolution, and she did some performing for Semyonov. And there was at some point where he made a nasty comment about her, and Balanchine didn't do anything, even though they were married. And she went home and said, why didn't you defend me? And so he went back the next day and punched Semyonov in the nose. 
And we're always, I'm always cheering George for punching him in the nose because I'm sure it was about much more Mm -hmm. than this. Defending his wife's honor in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. The process of ballet training itself is something amazing. And I think it's important for us to just think about how Balanchine, this great choreographer and ballet master and teacher, went through this process of formation as a young boy at the Imperial Theatre School. And Elizabeth has an extraordinary paragraph in her book about that process of formation of ballet training. And she writes it in the chapter on the ladies' training at the theater school, but it applies to the men, too. I'm going to read this passage, but before I read it, I want to say that I was not trained as a child in a rigorous program the way you, Silas, and I hope some of the people who are listening. So I didn't know what it felt like, so I had to ask dancers. And in particular, I spent a lot of time asking Zipporah Carr's who danced in City Ballet and was, to my mind, a beautiful dancer. I questioned Zipporah a lot, and this passage came from Zipporah and what she told me. Mm. The little girls began to acquire the straight backs and proud heads of future dancers, and the articulate legs, pointed feet, and fierce physical and mental concentration they also needed for the stage. They began to balance on one leg, turn cleanly, fit their gestures to the music, and to experience something that's hard to put into words. As the bodies of these 10-year-olds found a new alternative home in the turned-out leg and hip position, a sensation of power resulted, almost of enlightenment. Ballet's retraining of muscles, if done wisely, seems to increase the charged interior space of a body, infusing the psyche with something like an urge to cover great distance to show by means of ballet's ritual motions all the energy that's lodged inside. The effect of good ballet training then and now is that it bypasses thought or becomes thought, not analytic thought, but the kind that's bound up with emotion. Emotional energy flows into turned out positions and the child feels she can stretch further, move bigger, matter more in the world. It's as though a young body is gradually opened up not just to the flow of movement, but to a more buoyant and effective being. Anything unresolved, frustration, anger, yearning, can be loosened and let go in a ballet combination, swept into the energy of motion and the exaltation of self-mastery. Here ends part one. My conversation with Elizabeth Kendall continues in part two, which is available now. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.